Let's open in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity you give us to study your word, to uh, celebrate Christmas, to think of the Advent and what it means for the babe in the manger to come down uh, for us. Father, help us to enjoy what you show us in the Gospel of John today. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to be in the Gospel of John. If you want to turn there, be on 1001. Hundred and I think 26 or 27 in the Pew Bible, if you don't have that, if you want to turn there. But before we actually look at John, I want to ask you to do something in your mind. I want you to sum up in three words, you only get three words, the main point of Christianity. Sum up in three words the main point of Christianity. What three words would you use? Just think about it. You're going to sum up all of Christianity in three words. Think about that. I'm going to put up some passages to maybe guide your thought process in a, in a, a similar vein that mine was in. John 20, 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Acts 2, 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him that's Jesus Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Acts 10.36 As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Romans 10.9 Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jude 1, verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed for long, uh, who long ago were destined, designated excuse me, for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. One more. Revelation 17, 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb is whom? Jesus, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. So what three words sum up Christianity? Jesus is Lord. When these passages that we just looked at were written, what did Jesus is Lord mean? This list of words I'm getting ready to give you help us grasp what it meant to those living in the first century. Jesus is master, owner, sovereign over all creation. Even though the word Lord in the Greek, uh, in that Greek culture, could be used like we use the word sir, all right, when it is used to refer to Jesus Christ, it is used, especially after his resurrection, of uh, the idea that Jesus was having absolute power, authority, and rule over all creation. That's what it came. When somebody would say, Jesus is Lord, they were saying, He is the master of my total reality, my total being, and I understand that He is Lord over all creation. That's what Jesus is Lord. And that's why it's, it sums up Christianity. That's why it sums up Christianity. For Christ followers, this meant every aspect of life was centered on Jesus and His will for your life. 
All rights, all autonomy over your life were null and void. And what I mean by autonomy is you have no rights being a Christ follower. The only right you have is to worship whom? Jesus as your Lord and Savior. His will is your desire. His love is your desire. You live and you strive with everything that you are, to live in a way that pleases God, Lord Jesus Christ. Paul believed this. He wrote this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you think of Paul saying this, Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was high up amongst his peers. And he says, when I became a Christ follower, I laid all of that, and the only thing I boast in is that my Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. We also see him mention it again in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you. What does it mean to appeal? I'm begging you. Listen to me. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice, not a dead one that, that the Jews would have thought of, but a living sacrifice. And Paul is basically saying, you're living, you're breathing, but you act as if your life is dead and you are now only alive in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. A Christ follower is a living sacrifice. They have died to themselves and live only to serve Jesus Christ. So, I would expect that some of you here this would ask, what in the world does all of this have to do with who is the babe in the manger? What does this have to do with that? Most everyone here this morning would answer the question, who the babe in the manger is, like this. He is Jesus Christ. How many of you would, if I said, who is the babe in the manger, would have answered, he is Jesus Christ? How many of you would have said that? Pretty much everybody in here. Okay? That answer is correct. But let me ask you these questions to follow up. Why should this babe in the manger be Lord of your life? He's just a babe in a manger. We understand him as being Jesus Christ, but why should he be Lord over your life? Why is his birth so important and so different than any other birth? What makes him worthy of being sovereign ruler over our lives? Being able to answer these questions is so very important for everybody who is a Christ follower today because the world does not believe that Jesus is Lord over anyone's life. They don't. The culture believes that we have authority over our own lives in every respect. We can change the gender that we want to the gender that we want. We can uh, become what we want. We can do what we want. I am the autonomous ruler of my life, and there is no man named Jesus Christ who is going to do that. That's the world we live in. But we need to be different. We need to be people of Jesus Christ that when they look at us, they say, your life is completely different in priorities and why you live and why you breathe because it seems like Jesus Christ is the only thing you think about. And if somebody was ever to say that to me, I'm going to say, Amen. Amen. In the world, Jesus is seen as a good teacher, a great moral man, someone who lived a good life that others should mimic. 
But again, as we have said, or as I have said, he should never have the right to rule our lives. There is one book in the Bible written for the sole purpose of answering questions like we've discussed this morning. Questions like, who is Jesus Christ, the babe in the manger, and why should he be Lord of my life? The book is the Gospel of John. And so I would like everybody to turn there, if you're not already there. I would highly recommend that if you don't have a Bible, that you grab one of the Red Pew Bibles in front of you and turn to page 1,126 or 27. And we're going to look at this, or begin to look at this book that is called John's Gospel. And we need to set the stage before we ever begin examining it. John, the author of this book, starts out being one of the sons of thunder, as Jesus first called him and his older brother James. We see that in Mark chapter 3, verse 17. But as John spent time in the presence of Jesus, he became known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. In fact, John never mentions his own name. He only refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. That is the only name he, he gives to himself in his gospel. In his time with Jesus, John was so impacted by the love of Jesus that he is often referred to as the apostle of love. And we understand that in his writings. His writings point to that. John speaks about love 80 times in the four books that he authored. The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Eighty times he mentions the word love. Another favorite word in John's writings is truth which he refers to 45 times throughout his, throughout his biblical writings. However, neither of these words is John's favorite word. In just his gospel, he uses the word believe 100 times. It shouldn't surprise us then to find out that belief in Jesus Christ is the theme of John's gospel. And John is very, very clear about this. If you would turn to John chapter 20, verses 30, Verse 30, we'll see that. John chapter 20, verse 30. This is at the end of the gospel of John. John is wrapping things up. And he makes this statement. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the ones that he did write, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He says, I wrote everything that you have previously read for one purpose, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. He says, everything that I've written, when you approach the Gospel of John, you need to read this verse first, and you need to keep this verse in mind throughout the whole Gospel, because it's the theme of the gospel, of his gospel. John makes sure at the end of his gospel that no one misses his point. Everything he wrote was to lead us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. John's gospel at its very core is evangelistic. John wants to remove all doubt that the only way to have eternal life is to believe in Jesus Christ. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record Jesus' human birth, life, and death. John, however, sets out to prove that Jesus is God in the flesh, come down to save those who would believe in Him. 
In fact, 90% of what we find in John is not found in the other three Gospels. We see uh, Matthew has some stuff that Mark has in it, and Luke has some stuff that uh, Matthew has in it, in those three Gospels. But in John, 90% of it is completely unique because John doesn't care about Jesus' life history on this planet. He only cares that you and I would believe that he is the Son of God and the only one to be able to save us. That's what he wants us to understand. John MacArthur sums up the Gospel of John using John's three favorite words. He puts it this way. He, John, wants us to believe the truth so that we can enter into a relationship of love with Jesus Christ our Lord. John wants us to believe, his favorite word, the truth, so that we can enter into a relationship of love with the Lord Jesus Christ. The passage that Justice read this morning is considered to be the prologue of John's gospel. It is the basic introduction of who Jesus is. It's as if John has been asked, who is Jesus Christ? Or as we are looking at it, From our perspective here on this Advent season, who is the babe in the manger? In verse 18, he gives us a short introduction to this question. And then uh, through verses, the first 18 verses, he gives us an introduction to that answer, to the question. He's going to tell us in 18 verses how we know Jesus Christ is God. How we know who Jesus Christ is. And then he is going to use the rest of the book after those 18 verses, to expound on what he meant in the prologue. And you can pretty much outline what John is going to talk about from the prologue, because he's going to address all the issues in the prologue, or all the points he makes in the prologue, he's going to address throughout the rest of the book, the rest of his gospel. The simplest way to sum up John's answer to this question, who is the babe in the manger, is this. The babe in the manger is the eternal God himself, who has come down to earth in human flesh, and therefore he is worthy to be Lord of our lives. If we're going to sum up his gospel, that's what it would be. The babe in the manger is the eternal God himself, who has come down to earth in human flesh, and therefore he is worthy to be Lord of your life, Lord of my life. And John opens his letter by drawing our attention to the Word. Look at John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And one of the questions that we need to ask, or is often asked right up front, okay, is, who is the Word? What's he talking about? And right now, if I was to ask you who the Word is, tell me what you would say. Who is the Word in John's Gospel? Jesus Christ. Outstanding. You got it. The answer, correct. Now I want you to completely forget that you know that. For the rest of the time this morning, I want you to forget that you know that. The reason being is because the original readers of John's gospel did not know that. They would have started reading the gospel, and this word, this identity of the word would come up, and they're looking at this like, what is he talking about? They they had not come to understand through the rest of the gospel that the word is Jesus Christ, they're looking at this from a completely unknowing position that I have no clue who the word is. 
This will help us to approach these verses from the same perspective as John's audience if we would just forget at this point in time that Jesus Christ is the Word. Putting ourselves in that mindset, the Greek word that John uses for word is one that many of us have probably heard if you've been in church for very long. It is the Greek word logos. And you can read it like this. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was God, and the logos was, God, uh, was with God. To the Greek philosophers who were listening, it would have meant something different to them than what the Jewish folks would have been thinking about. You had two major groups of people reading this, and they would have come at the word or the identity of the word from two very different perspectives. To the Greek philosophers, the logos, the word, was like the force in Star Wars. It was an impersonal abstract principle of reason and order in the universe. It would have been, in some sense, seen as the creative force of the universe and the source of all wisdom. It was this, this idea of this force, this, this thing out there called the logos, the word. The average Greek would not have fully understood all the nuances that all the philosophers wrote, uh, Greek philosophers wrote about or invested in the term logos, but they would have understood the word as being an important universal force of immense power and the ultimate source of wisdom and reason within the universe. That's how the Greeks, and they would have said, hey, I understand logos. I understand what John is talking about, the logos. To the Jews, the logos, the word, would have been linked to the Old Testament idea of the word of the Lord or the word of God. The word of the Lord to them was the expression of divine power and wisdom. By the word of the Lord, the universe was spoken into existence. Remember? God said, let there be light, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He did that with what? His words. To the Jews, that's what God was. He was the word. He was the logos. The word of the Lord was expression of God, when He gave his Israel the Ten Commandments, when the prophets and kings led Israel via God's Word, by the Word of God, Israel won battles they should not, shouldn't have won. The Word to the Jews was completely different than the Word was to the Gentiles. They thought of this idea of the Logos, of the Word, in two very different ways. These are the ideas that would have cascaded through the Jewish and Gentiles' minds of John's audience when he said, in the beginning was the Word. Knowing that his audience, John uh, begins to prove that the Word is deity, and he does this using three proofs in the first five verses. He is going to use the, word and use the first five verses to say, the Word is deity deity. The Word is God. But what has He not done yet? He hasn't identified who it is. Nobody who's reading this right now really understands what it is. And so what we see is that John is going to lay out that the Word is eternal or He is preexistent, that He has creative power, and that He is self-existent. That's what we're going to find in the first five verses. Look at verses uh, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. John begins his first proof that the Word is deity because He is eternal. Remember that neither group would have known that John was referring to Jesus Christ yet. And so look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The way John writes this in the Greek points back to the very beginning of time. For us, it brings to mind what verse? One that I've already talked about. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That was the beginning. What was the beginning there? What was the beginning? What did, when it says in the beginning, what did that mean to the Jews, to us? It meant the beginning of time. It meant the beginning of matter. It meant the beginning of space. It meant the beginning of what we know as the universe. That's what John is referring to when he says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word, God to the Jews, Logos to the Greeks, is eternal because He existed before the heavens and the earth were created. The Word was in a state of existence before the beginning. No event in eternity past created the Word. The Word always existed and never had a beginning. The statement of the Word being in the beginning would not have been an issue for the Jews or the Greeks because the Jews understood that God, their God, Genesis 1-1, existed before creation, which would mean that He was what? Pre-existent, right? The Greeks would have thought, understood that the world had to come into being somehow, in some way, by some force, but that force had to what? Pre-exist before the beginning. And so both of them would have said, when John wrote this, in the beginning was the word, both of Jews and Greeks would have said, sure, I can deal with that. No problem. Now John moves on to not just say that the word in the beginning was the Word. He moves on to say the Word was with God. The Word was with God. John closes his proof by saying the Word was with God. Now, if we think about this, the Word is eternal. The Word is preexistent because the Word is God. The Word is eternal because He was with God. Christ followers before the 21st century have come to understand that the Trinity is what John is talking about here. They didn't have a problem with understanding that God existed before, was preexistent, but what they're going to have a problem with now is that this Word was with God. Think about that. This Word was with God. What does that automatically bring to our minds? This Word is a different person than God, true? Is that what it's saying? The Word was with God. You have the Word, and He was with God. But the problem with that is, to the Jews and to the Greek, there was only one what? God. This would have freaked them out. How can the Word be with God? We understand that the Word is God, the Word is preexistent, the Word is eternal, but how can there be two preexistent eternal things? Two existent pre-existent, eternal people. This would have been especially difficult for the Jews because, you see, they saw God as being one. The Greeks saw 
this force as being one, but they didn't have as much problem with it because they also worshipped what? More than one God. But they still, in their mindset, had this idea that even with this more than one God, there was still one supreme God. And John is, is going to mess them up here because he is saying, okay, this word who existed before time, who existed from all eternity, is also one being with two persons, the Word and God. That is what we call the beginning of the Trinity. You see, we understand now, being here in the 21st century, okay, that the Trinity means Father, Son, and what? Holy Spirit. But what do they not know yet? The Holy Spirit. John hasn't mentioned him, that they're still fairly early in Christianity. They haven't dealt with all of this yet. And so right now, this is the beginning in one of the most uh, prevalent Trinitarian passages that we have in the Bible because we now have two people who are preexistent who are known as the Word and God. They have the same nature. Both groups of people, Jews and Greeks, would have begun to react when they read this. They would have, been, have begun to shake their heads in disbelief and disagreement. But I want you to notice one thing about what John wrote. Did John try to defend his position? Did John say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and let me tell you how this works? What's he say? Remember what is one of John's favorite words? Truth. What did he just spell out? Truth. He's not interested in defending it at this point in time. He is just saying, this is the truth. When we go out into the world, what do people need to hear from us? The truth. We don't always have to defend it because this isn't God's Word. This is who God is. This is what God has revealed to us. Are there going to be people who hold that suspect? Yes. But one of the best things we can do for them is to tell them what? The truth. And sometimes we get so wrapped up in our witnessing that we say, well, I can't explain how the Trinity works. Okay, does John tell how it works? No. He just says, this is what it is. This is how life is in the universe. John moves on to his next proof that the Word is deity because of his creative power. The Word is deity because of his creative power. Look at verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John is quite clear here in verse 3, the Word created, the word created everything. There is nothing in the universe the Word didn't create. For the Jews and the Greeks, this would not have been a significant statement if John hadn't already revealed that there's one being with two separate persons. And what he's saying is, the Word did what? The Word created everything you and I know as reality. What does that mean? I mean, we, we, we say we know what that means, but what does that really mean? How many of you enjoy your reality? I mean, do we have a great auditorium here? We had all kinds of help come out and decorate. We have uh, singing, and we have music instruments, and, and we're all breathing, and we're all alive, and, and uh, we have uh, Christmas Advent to look forward to, and all of this stuff, and many of us just wholeheartedly 
enjoy the reality that we have? How many of you enjoy the reality of the relationships you have? Spouse, children, you enjoy the reality? None of that exists without the Word and His creative efforts. You and I are dependent on the creative power of the Word. Each and every day we are dependent on the creative power of the Word. As we said already, the Jews understood this from Genesis 1-1, and the Greeks understood it from their term logos. But now, how did this creative act work with one God who existed in two persons? But again, John does not stop to explain. He doesn't defend the truth he was writing. He makes a truth claim and moves on to the next proof that the Word is deity. He says the, de- the Word was deity because He existed. He was preexistent. He said the Word is deity because He was creative. He was the creative power behind the universe. And then look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. In Him, the Word, in the Word was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light of men shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know what he's saying here? The Word is deity because He is self-existent. He has no cause. And when you think about that, the word word here is life, and in Him was life. All life exists because He exists. Without the Word, all of created life would cease to exist. Scholars refer to this, or theologians refer to this as self-existence. God never had a beginning or an end, or the Word never had a beginning or an end. You and I can't grasp that, can you? This is, a, this is one of those theological concepts like the Trinity where we just believe because this is what we find in the Word of God. We can't explain the Trinity and how it works. We can't explain how the Word, okay, is self-existent. For the Jews, it was easy to believe that this Word or believe in the idea of self-existence because how did they, how did they come face to face with this? Through, their, through Moses. And Moses, before Israel became a nation and God was going to send uh, Moses into the Egypt to uh, rescue his people, and Moses is out tending sheep, and then what does Moses do? He's walking around and there's a burning bush. And like any of us, we would walk over and go, why is this bur- bush burning but not burning up? Why does it keep on burning? He gets close and a voice comes out of the bush. And he says, take off your sandals because you are now standing on holy ground. And so now God, this is God in the burning bush, and he tells Moses, I want you to go and rescue my people. And Moses and God have this little conversation. And Moses says, well, I'm not really worthy of that. And God says, I don't care. That's basically, if you sum it all up, true. And then Moses, he goes, well, who should I tell them sent me? Would that be a, I mean, if you're going to go to the leaders of a, of a nation like Israel, an infant nation, and you're going to say, God wants me to lead you out, would you not want to have a name to drop? I mean, how many of you would just go in and say, hey, follow me? I would go in and say, hey, follow me because this person told me that it's okay. And so Moses now says, okay, I'll do this if you tell me who I'm supposed to tell them told me to do this. And God says, I am that I am. Now, 
Think about Moses going to Pharaoh and going to the Israelite leaders and saying, I am told me to do this. You see, that's hard for us to understand, but Moses understood it. The Israelites understood it. Who was telling Moses to do this? God. Because he is the self-existent. The I am means I am self-existent. I depend on nobody or nothing else for my existence. Nothing. I am because I am. For the Greeks, this would have been more difficult to understand, this self-existence, because it's more tied to a person. But as we start thinking about this, for them, it was still this force. It was still this impersonal force that is, they would say, is the self-existent thing that exists that caused creation. So John has now given three very concise truth statements that offer proof that the Word is deity. He says that He is the self-existent one. He is the Creator, and He is pre-existent. The Word, He says, is deity. And He stops with that. He just says the word is deity, deity, and he stops. So we need to go back to the question, what has all this to do with the babe in the manger again? Remember, the Jews and the Greeks John was writing to didn't know who or what the word was yet. They were literally in the dark, and they won't know for a number of verses, which we will see later on. But we're going to jump ahead and see what this has to do with the babe. So everybody drop down to John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word, this deity, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we all have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth, there's that word, came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, only the, God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Remember, the Jews and Greeks didn't know. But what we're going to find here, what we find in these verses 14 through 18 is that John identifies who the Word is. And we haven't studied down through there, but I wanted to jump there because of we're asking the question, who is the babe? We see in verse 14 that the Word is the one who came in flesh. Remember, you don't know that this is Jesus Christ yet. The Word is the one who came in flesh. Verse 14, the Word is the one who was the only Son. But then we get down to verse 17, and he ties it all together. The Word is Jesus Christ, who is the only Son, who is the one who is flesh, who is the babe in the manger. The word that John is talking to, we know of as Jesus Christ. The babe in the manger is the deity in the flesh. The babe is God's only Son. The babe is Jesus Christ. And I want us to take a minute just to reflect on that as we close this morning. Why should this babe in the manger be Lord of your life? What makes him worthy of being sovereign ruler of our lives? The babe in the manger is worthy to be the Lord of your life because he is God in the flesh, the one who is life itself. 
He is the creator of the universe. He is the eternal self-existent one. Do you understand what we are saying about this little infant in the manger if we were to have one sitting here? Eternal God, the self-existent one, the one who has the power to create at the spoken word, all of that exists in an infant. Let that settle on your hearts. It all exists in an infant. How amazing is that? And so often in Christmas, we forget that. We like the, the Christmas carols, and we like the, the, the decorations, and we like the presents, and we like the family, and we like the food, and all those things are good, but we have to understand something. It's about this babe who is incarnate God. He is the eternal one. He is the preexistent one. He is the one that created our very reality. It's all starting with a babe in a manger. And we must not miss that this Advent season. We must not allow culture and Satan and our own selfishness to distract us from the fact that we are celebrating and we are focusing on this babe in a manger who is God incarnate. He is the Word, and we understand what the Word is now. It's mind-boggling. We ask, why is He worthy of being our Lord and Savior? (laughs) Because God came down here in the form of flesh, in the form of a babe, to save us. He gave up everything so that He could save us, that He could pay our sin debt, so that we could have a way to have a relationship with God without sin in the way. And He is worthy to be worshipped. He is worthy to be our Lord because He paid the debt of our death so that we wouldn't have to. We owe Him our eternal lives. There is nothing more important in your life, no relationship, no career, that is more important than Jesus Christ being your Lord. And we, in our, in our lives here, we aren't really pressed with that a lot. We don't, it's getting worse. We're not really having to face the consequences of having Jesus Christ as our Lord on a daily basis. But there was a man named Polycarp. And this man was one of the early church fathers and he was brought before a council and in this council they said if you will deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ if you will deny that he is Lord we will let you go but if you don't deny that he is that he if you still believe that he is Lord if you still hold that he is deity in the flesh we will kill you. And he stood before them and said, He is my Lord and Savior. And he lost his life because of it. His very reality that we think of on this earth ended, but the very reality of that is that he ended up being with his Lord. Do we live every day as if Jesus Christ is your Lord? He is the most important thing. Every decision that you make revolves around your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the babe and the manager. Everything 
from the time when our foot steps on the floor in the morning till it raises off the floor at night, revolves around our Lord and Savior because He is worthy. We live to please Him. We live to bring Him glory. We live to tell the world about Him. I want to direct your attention out those doors. We're going to leave here in just a minute. Those doors used to be solid. I couldn't see out. Now I get distracted because I see people walking back and forth, and I can tell you when it's raining, or I can tell you when it's lightning. You know, I can, all this stuff going out right there. I mean, it's all right there. That's life outside those glass doors. In the time that we have spent here, in the time that we have spent here, I want you to grasp this. Hundreds of thousands of people in the world have died. Grasp that. Just in the time that we have been sitting here since 1030, an hour. Hundreds of thousands of people have died. And if statistics are right, the majority of them died without knowing Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they are now eternally separated from Christ because of that. Did you get that? We get to celebrate the babe in the manger. We get to celebrate that He is our Lord and Savior. But the world needs to see us serve Him as Lord and Savior day in and day out. The world needs to see Him being the most important thing in our life. The world needs to see us pleasing Him day in and day out. So when they look at us, they go, what is different or why are you so different? Why do you not have the same priorities I have? Why don't you think of the world like I do? And we look at them and you say, because I don't serve myself. I serve my Savior, Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. And the world needs that present from you this Christmas. If we get so caught up in Christmas and the Advent, because I've already heard it from many of you. How you doing? Oh, this time of year is just so busy. I got to go to this party over here and I got to do this over here. And I have not even started Christmas present shopping. I haven't either. It's because my wife does it all. And we already made a deal this year that we're not going to give each other a present because we're going to do something else, which means I don't have to buy any presents this year. Some people are saying amen to that. But the thing that we have to understand is all that stuff is not bad within itself, but all that stuff, if it becomes a distraction of us giving the present of Jesus Christ to the world, then this Advent season has been nothing but about us instead of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me challenge each of you to enjoy the blessings that we have. Enjoy the Advent. Enjoy the food. Enjoy the fellowship. Enjoy your families. Enjoy all of that. God has blessed us, but don't let it distract us from what the world needs. And the world needs Jesus Christ. The world needs the present that can change their lives. And they need to see that in you. And let me encourage you, when you walk out today, for the rest of this Advent season, begin to think of your life as being in service 
of your Lord and Savior, your Master, Jesus Christ. When you walk out this door, every decision you make this Advent season, run through this grid. How does this show that the Lord Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior? How does this show the world that Jesus is Lord? Everything you do. Because that will help us not be distracted. And that will help us be able to give the world a present that they so desperately need. As we close, bow your heads. Father God, we come to you. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord God, for the opportunity to study your word. And Father, I pray that my words didn't get in the way. I pray, Lord God, that you worked through me today to help people understand that Jesus is worthy to be Lord and Savior of their life. Father, help us to continue focusing on that this Advent season. In Christ's name, amen.